guest, Mike McEntee. You know, every day on this program, we talk about political discord. We talk about gridlock. We talk about how gerrymandering has taken over this nation and how uh, the minority elected a president, how, how just it seems like democracy isn't working anymore. Well, I've got some good news on that part today. And no, it's not that you're that Donald Trump is going away or that, you know, suddenly uh, Congress is going to change hands here in, in a couple of weeks. It may at the end of the year. Who knows? The, the news I have is actually out of Ohio, where yesterday in a race that is so below the radar, somebody who pays attention to gerrymandering like myself, I missed this. And it's great news. John Nichols from The Nation, though, was paying attention, and he joins us now to talk about that and some other news that's going on nationally. John, welcome to the program. Mike, it's great to be with you. Good to be with you. Now, I've, I've played this up as kind of the salvation of democracy. I, I may have oversold it a little bit, but tell us what happened in Ohio yesterday. Well, I don't think he oversold it. I think democracy is saved step by step, and uh, people in Minnesota are working on it right now people in Wisconsin, and people in Ohio. Uh, what happened in Ohio, though, yesterday was very, very good news. And I'll back us up just a little bit so people get a perspective on this. As recently as 2010, Democrats elected 10 members of Congress from Ohio. In 2011, Republicans got control of the Ohio governorship and the legislature, and they gerrymandered the congressional districts. In 2012, that 10, or, you know, that, that in the 2008 election, they'd gotten up to 10. They held it up to 2010. 2012, they had an election. It fell to four. Democrats only elected four members of Congress under the new lines. And that radical gerrymandering, that six, has remained in ever since. People in Ohio said, this is absurd. I mean, Democrats are getting... A substantial portion of the vote. They're elected a U.S. senator. They're sometimes they're very competitive in presidential politics, and yet at the congressional level, they're on the losing end of essentially uh, a three-to-one ratio. It's it's so overwhelmingly tipped toward the Republican. And so people petitioned, they challenged, they objected. They finally got the legislature to accept a reform and to put it on the ballot as a constitutional amendment. Yesterday, it came to a head. They voted on it. Seventy-five percent of the people in Ohio voted to overturn their model for partisan gerrymandering, and as of the next census in 2020, to implement a new system which has all sorts of fail-safes that protect against a radical gerrymandering. And it's a relatively complicated set of steps, initially mm -hmm. starting in the legislature, moving to a nonpartisan, or I'm sorry, moving to a bipartisan commission, yep. and then potentially even going back to the legislature. But the bottom line on this is at every turn, there's a requirement that the minority party uh, have be a major part of this and that actually have a huge role in defining the district lines. And that balancing means that you're just not going to be able to do what they did in Ohio. Democrats in Ohio are literally saying that just fair maps, you know, a, a fair balance, could get them three or four more congressional seats. Uh, and so this is a very, very big deal uh, response to a crisis in America, that being gerrymandering. And it comes, last note here, it comes at a point where we are anticipating, not certain of, but anticipating the prospect of a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that may dial gerrymandering back as well. And if it does, People around the country are going to be looking for all sorts of models on how to address gerrymandering if the court says they have to. I prefer nonpartisan, you know, commissions doing it. But in states that may be resistant to that for whatever reason, this Ohio model is a one of the better things I've seen come up. So Ohio has fixed, at least to some extent, fixed its problem. And they've also given us a model, uh, which may be very useful in the months and years to come. Now, to be clear, this is not just an Ohio problem, as you were you were saying. This is this is happening in some form or another. I would say in nearly every state in the nation that there is a, both parties when they get control, there is there's an incentive 
when they have uh, when they have uh, you know the power to be able to use it. Now California has come up with a different way of doing it. Some other states have come up with a different way of doing it. But basically, it boils down to that those that have the party, those that have the uh, the power in a lot of these states, make the rules. This would be a radical change in that, and if successful, I think could be. I, I mean. It's a question of how each state adopts it, because uh, some states have initiative and referendum. Some do not. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I look at this and say, I, I, I certainly think that this could be a, you know, adopted and accepted in a lot of different states, even though it's complicated, because the basic tool here that you mentioned is that the minority party has to buy into this. And I would think that in every state, every party, whether they're Democrat or Republican, has to be thinking at one point they could wind up in the minority and they don't want to be bulldozed. So this is a, a great, uh, this would be incentive to make an agreement like this. Absolutely. And and I mean, look, I want to be careful here because we, you and I are both using the term complicated and we're throwing it around. Right. Um, and I understand that. The truth of the matter is that, yes, there's some steps here, there's stages, and, and frankly, the League of Women Voters and Common Cause and NAACP and other groups that back this effort, um, you know, they wanted people to understand the whole of it. It is spelled out in this constitutional amendment. But if we look at it realistically, it's not that complicated. The simple model is that at every stage of the process, there's now in Ohio a constitutionally mandated requirement that the minority party be heard, and that if the map is not acceptable to the minority party, to at least half of the minority party, um, the gerrymandering cannot go forward. And if they do force the hand, even at the most extreme level, it can only last for four years, not 10 years. And so really what people just need to understand is that Ohio voters, Ohio citizens, have forced upon the politicians of that state a set of rules that makes the worst forms of partisan gerrymandering, the most extreme forms, uh, no longer doable. And i got to tell you, uh, in this era when we don't get enough good news, um, I would rank this very high on the list of good news. Uh, Again, not just for Ohio, but for the country, because... I think we're in a moment where gerrymandering has become a live issue and where people really are looking for models and ways to address it. And we've had a win. I would agree with you that you and I say complicated, but it's no more complicated than I would say if somebody understands how to play fantasy football or how sports playoffs work. <laughs> yeah. This is, I mean, it's the same type of uh, type of rules here. Uh, it is, uh, it is, it's, it's just probably you know, no a... more complicated than figuring out how to put the ads and the breaks in on a radio show. <laughs> well, that I've never gotten very good at, so we're not going to go there. But uh, <laughs> okay. it, 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 it is pretty, it is pretty set, you know, cut and dried. Yeah, there's, there's, there's different stages, but as I said, it's, it's, it's like a playoff. As you move up, you, you change, you change the rules, you change a little bit, you know, but you eventually get to a resolution, which is mm-hmm. going to be, if not perfect, it's going to be better than what we started with. So that, that's great. Here in Minnesota, you know, it's, it's not just gerrymandering. I, I know that's really part of the, the national conversation about elections. There's a lot of other laws and rules, everything from, you know, voter registration to, uh, you know, you name it. You know, uh, it's here in Minnesota, we've been lucky that we've had uh, the last couple of governors, uh, Governor Mark Dayton and actually before him, Governor Tim Pawlenty always said that we're not going to make any change, major changes in election laws unless we have, you know, not just bipartisan agreement, but deep bipartisan agreement from the legislature. And when mm-hmm. you know, we've had a lot of uh, proposals that have rolled through that would, you know, basically disenfranchise people, even, you know, even though it would be, you know, to the Republican governor's advantage, they've, they've vetoed it or pushed it down. Now, we've been lucky here in Minnesota because of that. But other states have not been so lucky, and there's been all sorts of changes that basically make it tougher for some people to vote and put actually push some people off the voting rolls. That's that I see as yeah. the next level of things that need to be attacked here. But this is a great start today. Well, it is. It's important, and, and look, I, I follow Minnesota politics pretty closely, and 
Minnesota is relatively a much more evenly balanced state than a lot of people think. People on the East Coast always presume Minnesota is like this incredible left-wing bastion where, you know, no Republican can ever win. What we know is that historically Republicans have had good years, bad years, Democrats as well. Um, and But the big deal in Minnesota to understand is that in the 2010 election and in the 2014 election, Minnesota saw... Uh, Democratic victories for the governorship, and you, and that was different than a lot of other Midwestern states. Uh, different from Wisconsin, different from Michigan, different mm-hmm. from Ohio, different from Illinois, at least in the 2012 context. Uh, different from Iowa, and so uh, the reason I point this out is that I think there are many Minnesotans who think, okay, well, you know, we've got a culture in this state that is better. That is that is more progressive, more solid, and, and we don't see these abuses. What I would counsel is that Wisconsinites thought the same thing, and then came the 2010 election of Scott Walker, the yes. Walker re-election in 2014, and you saw incredibly radical partisan gerrymandering come in, as well as a host of other assaults on small d democracy. And so, I think even in the states that have good traditions, and even in the states where we haven't seen the worst abuses. You're only an election away from people trying to game the system. And for that reason, citizens should be involved with these structural issues. They should be looking for ways to lock in fair maps, looking for ways to lock in fair voting models. And remember, Minnesota had a vote not that many years ago on voter ID issues, you know, statewide referendum. Um, But all sorts of steps that can be taken to make sure that your good models, your good protections that are there remain no matter who gets elected. And that's, this is, this is something uh, that I, I counsel people having been through the experience in Wisconsin. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, we're only election away. Whereas in Wisconsin, we're only election away. That doesn't happen. That's been going on there too. So, well, uh, <laughs> gaming of the system at the very worst. Yeah. 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 Uh, we're speaking with John Nichols of The Nation, and uh, one of the other stories that you've written I wanted to jump into here is uh, the big story that's been dominating the news yesterday and today, which is, of course, Trump announcing that the U.S. is getting out of the Iraq deal. Um, you have been focusing on the reaction to this and what this means. Tell, tell me what the general reaction here has been that you've been running into. Um, look, getting out of the Iraq deal is a terrible idea, um, and it's an especially bad idea uh, if you ever want to have something going forward from this. You know, I know that Donald Trump, and I'll give him his credit on this, Donald Trump's a guy who believes in sort of big bravado negotiating, right? You know, ah, we're canceling the deal in hopes that then the other players will come racing back and, and not want that to fall apart. And, I, and so I understand, I hope I understand a little bit of what's going on in his head here. The problem is that's a profound miscalculation for three reasons. Number one, the Iranians, I apologize, I think I may have said Iraq a second ago, I apologize. The Iranians uh, are I think I did very, too, yeah. very experienced at this. They have been through this for a very long time. And so you're not dealing with sort of like weak players or newcomers. And in Iran, there's always a political battle going on. And that battle, uh, you advantage one side or the other. You advantage either the moderates who want to try negotiations or you map, you empower the hardliners. What Trump has done is empowered the hardliners. He's made it harder to do further negotiations. That's number one. Number two, our European allies are committed to this deal. They don't love it. They don't think it's perfect, but they are committed to it, and they're going to continue to be interacting with and engaged with Iran. There's two reasons for that. Number one, Iran's a lot of people. It is a big country. They do want it to be stable, and they also, frankly, have commercial relationships with it. Secondly, Iran has huge influence throughout the Middle East. If you saw the Lebanese elections just the other day, the people allied with Iran did very, very well. If you look at the Iraqi elections that are coming up, uh, the Iranian-aligned political forces are going to do very, very well. So when you're dealing with Iran, you're actually dealing and with much more of the region. Such as and then Hezbollah. the final third thing I'll quickly say is keep an eye on the Russians. They're playing in that region a lot too, and they they have much more ability to back up the Iranians uh, than than I think Trump understands. Yeah, uh, 
you you were you were monitoring the uh, reaction we got here from uh, the people who really should know, the people who negotiated or worked on this deal over you know decades. You know, uh, President Obama, uh, Secretary of State Clinton, uh, uh, Secretary of State to John Kerry. I mean, basically, what you said here, I think, outlines what they were saying, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, look, and it's also people who were, you know, on some of these issues during the Bush years. I mean, this is there's a a relative level, at least in people who follow diplomacy and follow global affairs. Uh, there's a relatively shared understanding that while you may not like the Iranian players or at least some of the players in Iran, you, you have to recognize the political dynamics on the ground the political dynamics in the region, the political dynamics as regards our European allies, and the political dynamics as regards Russia. When you put all of those things on the table, what you realize is that this agreement is a is a very complicated machine with lots of moving parts. And if you simply declare as a president of the United States, I'm out of this thing, you know, I'm withdrawing from this thing, A, you can't even do that. I mean, it's going to be very, very hard in some ways. But B, um, there's an awful lot of mechanics who are going to be committed to trying to keep that machine running, even if you're not there. And so I think Trump has made a bad, bad calculation here. And I think he's living in a fantasy where he thinks, well, it's okay because I'm going to get a good result with the Koreans in short order. And the counsel I would give is, A, I don't think we're guaranteed of a good result. With the Koreans, it may come, and I, and I certainly hope we get peace on the Korean Peninsula. But B, even if it does, the dynamics as regards North Korea and the Korean Peninsula are so radically, fundamentally, overwhelmingly different from the dynamics with Iran and you know the the countries of of Southern Asia and the Middle East that it's you know Trump kind of seeming to blend these things together in his own head. That's an absurd construct. It, it, they are not instructive as regards one another. And I would warn that a simplistic approach to Iran has tripped up American presidents at least since Jimmy Carter, and I would argue mm-hmm. going back to Eisenhower. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. I wanted to uh, very quickly, because we only got a couple minutes left here, I wanted to quickly play for you because uh, the, the the White House press secretary today was asked about uh, some of the objections you, you've, you've raised here and saying that uh, Obama and Kerry and Clinton had raised these same objections and did what did they think of that? And the response is, you might think was pretty predictable, but here it is. I think based on each of those individuals' lack of success uh, in this entire process on foreign affairs, they would probably be the last three people that we would look to for advice and counsel and whether or not we had made the right decision. Reaction? Well, the absurdity of the phrase, the lack of success, I think what people have to understand is that this is not a lack of success. Um, The fact is that the international monitors, as well as uh, the players on the ground, uh, as well as our allies uh, all over the world, are saying that while they are not wholly satisfied with every aspect of this agreement, that essentially the Iranians have been cooperating with it, and uh, the evidence is that, that this is at least a framework that you would go forward from. And so Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who, you know, look, has grudgingly had to, if not acknowledge, at least accept the reality that she lies for a living. And remember, just a week ago, people were asking her, you know, why we should believe her. And she was saying, well, I, I work with the best information I've got at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, has acknowledged she doesn't know what's going on. And frankly, again, uh, at least grudgingly had to deal with the question of whether she even tells the truth is saying that John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama were massive failures in this regard. But with all due respect, the rest of the world doesn't see it that way. And uh, and polling shows that only 29% of Americans, or 28, 29% of Americans, think we should withdraw from this deal. So uh, she is in a tiny minority in her own country, and an even tinier minority uh, on the global stage uh, if she thinks that you shouldn't listen to the President of the United States 
who put a lot of this deal together and his foreign policy. And I would just commend to people if they want to see a good, solid statement on this. You know, former presidents don't usually criticize their successors, but Barack Obama did release a very lengthy statement yesterday uh, where he detailed everything that is wrong with what Trump is doing. And the interesting thing is Obama's criticism of Trump has far more information, far more background details than Trump's statements on this thing. So I think I'm going to go with Obama on this one. I, I think I will, too. John Nichols with The Nation. You can read him over at thenation.com. John, I love our conversations when we get a chance to have him, and we'll have to have another one here in the future. I appreciate your time today. It's an honor to be with you. Great station, great community, great state. All right. We're going to take a break here, folks. But when we get back, Governor Dayton vetoed something, and you're going to be interested to hear what it was and why. That's all next year on The Mike McEntee Show. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coop. It's home improvement season, and you know there's lots of projects to tackle. Here's one that won't break the budget. Get your carpet cleaned by Zero Res. If you have pets and kids banging around, you know your carpet needs some love. This month, get three rooms Zero Resified, starting at $139. Plus, this month, save $50 when you get your Air Ducts Zero Res clean. Call 952-ZERO-RES or visit ZeroResMN.com. Zero Res. Spell it backward or forward, it spells the same. The fine folks at Common Good Books will help you find the perfect book for you or the book lover in your life. Find a huge selection from a locally owned and independent bookseller in the Twin Cities. They are always bringing in top authors from around the globe for special in-store events. Open Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. and Sundays, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Find Common Good Books at 38 South Snelling Avenue in St. Paul or shop online at commongoodbooks.com. What do we do with the cars and trucks that are donated to Auto Technical? We help families with transportation. Sometimes they break down in tears, they're so relieved. Kids jumping around saying, oh, now we can go see Grandma. Do something great. Donate that car or truck to Auto Technical. Call me. Call Auto Technical at 612-919-5526 or online at autotechnical.org. Hey, welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. Uh, Governor Mark Vito, um, Governor Mark Vito, <laughs> that's what Republicans may end up calling him, I guess, by the end of the session. Governor Mark Dayton today vetoed a bill that would have killed pollution protections for wild rice, calling it an extreme overreach by state lawmakers and a violation of the federal Clean Water Act. Uh, Dayton says the legislature has 12 days to come up with another proposal, quote, that respects federal law and protects our precious wild rice and waters. So uh, what is this all really about? It is about wild rice, but it's really about the mining and the environment. The proposed law, which was passed by the Republican-controlled House and Senate, was tied to a nearly 10-year-old political and legal battle over Minnesota's official state grain and a water quality standard for sulfate, a mineral salt pollutant produced primarily by mining operations and wastewater treatment plants. The Minnesota Pollution Control Agency had proposed a new standard that was recently overturned by administrative law judge who said it was too complicated and unconstitutionally vague, but she upheld the previous standard of 10 milligrams per liter, which had been on the state books since 1970. Uh, The or the 70s, I should say. The bill Dayton vetoed would require the MPCA to start all over again, which they plan to do anyway, but it would have prohibited the agency from enforcing the current standard while it went through the lengthy rulemaking progress. Uh, That, Dayton said, would be a violation of the Federal Clean Water Act 
and would have put the Pollution Control Agency in an impossible bind and would inevitably lead to litigation. He has asked legislators to come up with a better idea. Uh, Republicans are, have, are, are going to respond to this at some point here, and we'll be hearing from them, I'm sure. Hey, we're going to hear more about the legislature coming up here next with Kevin Featherly on a lot of different bills that are pending. Uh, we'll get into that here in just a few minutes on the Mike McEntee Show. Hi, it's Tom Hartman. You know, Continental Diamond is special for a lot of reasons. The owners are Jimmy and Helene Pessis, a husband and wife team who had a dream to open their own store more than 30 years ago. They built a business that is the gold standard. The readers of Minnesota Bride Magazine have named Continental Diamond the best jeweler for the last seven years. Why? Amazing, friendly, no-pressure customer service, a selection of fine diamonds and designed jewelry unlike anywhere else, and the fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies are pretty great, too. Continental Diamond in St. Louis Park and at ContinentalDiamond.com. Six years ago, Dr. Emily Stein was confronted with a life-changing situation. Her grandmother developed rheumatoid arthritis and was unable to maintain her own dental hygiene. Unfortunately, her assisted living facility didn't have the resources to help her maintain her dental health either. Once her dental health deteriorated, her overall health deteriorated too. It wasn't long until she had multiple tooth extractions and a severe stroke. That's when Emily put her Stanford background in microbiology and immunology to work. She created an oral care lozenge, or Smart Mint, that manages oral bacteria to promote strong teeth, healthy gums, and fresh breath. Daily Dental Care is a life sciences company dedicated to addressing public health by targeting the root cause of dental disease. Because let's face it, we all could use a little extra help supplementing our daily dental care routine. Visit dailydentalcareswithans.com or go to Amazon to purchase our lozenges and use promo code DDC95502 for a 25% discount on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Daily dental care lozenges are not intended to replace daily dental hygiene practices. Who's your most trusted companion? Who's with you 24-7? What do you never leave home without? Your phone. But the screen is shattered. Don't panic. Bring it to Computer Revolution with cell phone repair. We have over 18 years experience fixing computer devices, all brands, all carriers. We'll replace that screen and have it back same day. Computer Revolution with cell phone repair in Roseville at Highway 36 in Fairview. Or call 651-633-6600. We fix phones. Same day, seven days a week. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. I'm looking at the calendar. There is less than 12 days to go for the Minnesota legislature and lots of work left to do. It's crunch time. And down there at the legislature watching what's going on is Kevin Featherly with Minnesota Lawyer at at minlawyer.com. He joins us now to talk about what's been happening. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Mike. Uh, there, there was. I want to get into what's coming up, but I want to talk about first of what happened yesterday because there was a, a very controversial bill that's been kicking around for the last couple of sessions that basically penalizes, increases the penalties for protesters for doing exactly what was done by Black Lives Matter, which is blocking a freeway. You got a chance to watch that whole thing play out, didn't you? I've been watching this play out for two years now. What's, it's really uh, sort of the same issue from last year that the, you know the same sort of bills that they they tried to get last year and they didn't quite make it all the way through the process and they're back now. So let's talk about what it is and let's talk about what might happen to it. For those folks who have not been paying attention, other than the thumbnail description I gave to this, what exactly is this bill and and why is it being offered? The bill essentially increases penalties on people who block uh, freeways, uh, airports, and transitways. And it increases the penalty from what the existing misdemeanor, it's already illegal to do this. You know, by by law, you're not allowed to go walk onto a freeway and, and stop traffic in the name of whatever your cause might be. But what they want to do is increase that to a gross misdemeanor, which could mean up to a year in jail, and it's a, a much stiffer penalty than is carried in a misdemeanor crime. And as some people have noted, that means it puts uh, this crime of walking out on a freeway, blocking traffic at pretty much the same level as somebody who, for the first time, decides to cold cock their girlfriend and put her in the hospital. That also is a gross misdemeanor. 
And, and uh, what's happening with it is two things. It, it's actually, it, it sort of sprung a second head. Uh, it, it has been folded into this megabus bill, the mega omnibus supplemental budget bill that uh, is now in the conference committee. The House has it in its side of that gigantic bill that at some point is going to rise up and eat Cleveland. Um, and it's also gone forward as, as an individual separate bill that got heard on the House floor yesterday and was passed. So both of these things have passed in two different forms. It's exactly the same language, but it exists in two different places. And I asked Nick Zerwas why he's doing that, and he said that he thinks Minnesotans deserve to hear the bill on its own without any attachment to the omnibus bill. And he thinks that Minnesotans need to hear from, you know, individually from legislators and I think more importantly, the governor. He wants the governor to say yay or nay to that bill on its own. Now, last year, Gov- I think last year, Governor Dayton said that he might sign something like this. Has he changed his mind on that? Are we hearing anything different this time around? It's hard to say because he was asked about that, and his response was that he hadn't really looked at the standalone bill, so that frankly sounded a little bit like a hedge. What he said is that he, he supports the idea of keeping people off freeways. But what okay. exactly? But what he and then he appended to that that uh, he doesn't want he wouldn't support a bill that truncates people's First Amendment rights. So where the line on that would be drawn is really hard for me, at least, to parse out. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what version of this he'd accept and what version he wouldn't accept. Um, somebody made the suggestion that the governor said that the, the fact that this is uh, talks about all transit ways. Uh, might be the stopper, as opposed to just freeways or just airports, um, all forms of transit, that might be the thing that uh, complicates him and leads him to veto it. But I haven't heard him say that myself. And I'm I'm really a little confused on, on what version of this legislation he would accept, quite honestly. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, a, a lot of the groups uh, that you would expect uh, the protest that have been protesting those who support Black Lives Matter and others have been very much opposed to this group. And on the uh, have have we heard from uh, police groups? Have we heard from sheriffs and 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 those types of groups saying that this is something they need? It's a tool they need to fight the uh, you know to fight whatever they're trying to fight here. Judging from what was said on the House floor and judging from my own you know, experience covering these committee hearings, the answer to that is no. But what Representative Zerwas says is the reason for that is because police don't want to go there. They don't want to put themselves out as being the, the, you know, the people responsible for curtailing people's First Amendment rights because that's the way, frankly, the left is viewing this. So they're kind of staying out of it. That's, that's what he says. But a guy like Dave Pinto will say, look, they haven't stepped forward. They're not complaining. This isn't an issue that they feel needs to be addressed. Um, The truth lies probably somewhere in the middle there. Because I think of people like Bob Kroll, who is the uh, the head of the police union for uh, for Minneapolis, never is uh, short of uh, saying what's on his mind if uh, something is he thinks is important for his uh, for his officers, and we haven't heard from him. I so oh. I I kind of I kind of wonder on that too whether this is something that police really want because it's already as you said a crime for somebody to do this and i don't know what additional you know resource that gives them if indeed it's a bigger crime uh i i i, it, I don't i don't think it's going to deter anybody from doing something like this it's just going to you know make things more complicated afterwards because this is yep. if if, it, if it's right. a crime it's it's a crime of passion it's people going out there and doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do not because they premeditate hey i think I, it's a good day to shut down traffic because i like shutting down traffic Right. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me about this debate is just the the quality of it just seems to be voices passing in the night. I mean, people don't seem to hear each other. You know, you listen to a guy like Representative Newberger, who's an EMT, who's a paramedic, and he gave just this passionate, you know, speech talking about what it means to be somebody attending to a patient in an ambulance and what it would mean to have that passageway blocked to that ambulance and, and you know, it's just a harrowing story. On the other hand, you have somebody like um, Representative Rena Moran giving just this gripping speech talking about what it means to be African-American and, you know, having, as she put it, you know, lives 
being dispensable. And but there just doesn't seem to be anywhere where these two arguments can can meet in the middle and and find, I guess, compromise. I, it just it doesn't seem to be what is being even sought. People are just making these these they want to score these points, mm-hmm. um, valid as either side might be. But there just doesn't seem to be any real communication. That's the thing that strikes me the most listening to this. I mean, it's what strikes me. I mean, I think your your point is correct. It's, it's scoring points, and I think uh, Representative Zeros and perhaps uh, the Republicans uh, who are uh, much behind this bill are looking at this and saying this is a s- points that we can score for potential uh, you know victories here in the 2018 election because it's all about it's it's a lot of things. It it sets up uh, urban versus rural because this is you know a people think really of does. these pro these protests is an urban problem and that, you know, we're going to stick it to the urban folks with this, you know, that, and that's not, and the people who support Black Lives Matter are not the Republican constituency by most, you know, accounts. So there's a, you know, a lot of political calculus, I think, that goes into this. And it's really just more of irritating the other side. I, I you know, And I feeding frankly, ground to the other side. I mean, when you, when you have the DFLers, you know, demanding that the other side check their privilege. Well, that's that's not a way to build a bridge. You know? <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, you, I listened to Representative Howe talking about his daughter, and she was traveling, and she got caught up unexpectedly in a protest, and she couldn't find her way to him. She got on a train and to go from one side of the airport to the, the other terminal, and still get, was confronted with protesters, and she, he said that that was traumatic for her and that they were terrorized, and Representative Moran responded to that, and her quote was, um, if, oh, I don't have it in front of me, but it, it was, you know, I only wish, in other words, I only wish that I, that was as big a problem as I face as a black woman or that the black men in my life face on a daily basis. Yeah, it's it's really harrowing stuff, and it's really brought a lot of frayed emotions right to a boil. I mean, I look at this and say, well, okay, are we going to criminalize uh, things when you have an auto accident, and that blocks for, you know, blocks a freeway? You were, you know, does that does that mean that you face, you know, a, a potential bigger uh, bigger penalty because your car is blocking the freeway. And people say, well, that's an accident. It's not premeditated. But it's still kind of the same thing. It it happens. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm probably walking down the road here for false equivalency, but what I'm saying is there's a lot of things that block freeways and that stall people out. And there's not a lot that we can always fix on those things, but there are there are some things that we know are systemic about racism and about uh, you know what happens between police and and uh, African Americans and other minorities that we can do something about, and that's what really this is. That's really the argument that's behind the protest is that we need to do something. We need to get people's attention. Certainly true. Hey, I, I want to talk about, because you mentioned this was uh, also part of uh, what is being referred to as the megabus bills. They used to be called omnibus, yeah. but I guess we put a couple of them together, you get well, a, a megabus bill. That is, how is that all omnibus. playing out? <laughs> <laughs> how is that all playing out? Because we got a, a, a just, we're getting down to just like it's the playoffs and they keep combining and we get down to maybe one or two bills. How is that playing out right now? Well, the Senate uh, just went right to the omnibus, omnibus. They, they they went immediately to that. They didn't even, you know, the House did it a little differently. They they took all their divisions. So, like, I'm I'm sort of uh, obsessed with judiciary and public safety. You got state government operations. You've got E12. You've got all the different divisions, all the different budget areas. They actually, the House actually listened to each one of those om- individual omnibus bills, debated them individually. Took a long time to do that, and uh, then. Combined them. Finally, really, the, the the omnibus omnibus on the House side really only became a, a, an entity yesterday when it was presented in conference committee. And it, so the entire bill, as it exists, was never debated on the floor. But again, they did argue it over its constituent parts. The Senate was exactly the opposite. They went right to the Gigantor bill, but never really debated its constituent parts, which led John Marty to call it uh, a bill um, relating to practically anything and everything. He actually uh, proposed that as an alternative title to the bill that they actually passed. I saw so where that. it's going now is it is in the omnibus stage. Now it's in the conference committee stage, and they're, they're really going through it uh, not quite line by line. 
they're just doing the comparison today. Um, what happens is it'll probably pass, and then the governor, it's hard to say, but I, it, it certainly seems like he's leaning toward vetoing it. Now, the governor doesn't have a line item veto on something like Correct. this. It's all or nothing. So this is really kind of a political calculation by the Republican majority of what they can push through, what poison pills they might be able to get the governor to accept, because he signed some of that stuff in the past. He's regretted it, I think, but he's done that yeah. in the past. You don't you don't think he's going to do that this time, though? I don't—well, just a minor correction. I think he does have the line of veto, but it only, as always, only uh, pertains to uh, appropriations. What he right. doesn't have the line item veto for is all the policies that's, that are tucked in there. So, like, for instance, the freeway bill that we were talking about, he couldn't line item veto that. He could pull out a chunk of spending. So that exists. Um, but to get to your point, um, it, it, I asked him yesterday if he— is, you know, can we presume that you're going to veto this? And he wouldn't say yes to that. He said he hasn't really seen it all yet. Um, it certainly, but he's certainly given indications. For instance, he said that he would not accept any bill that changes the uh, already agreed to budget of the various agencies. Well, this bill does do that. It takes $1.4 million from the Department of Human Rights, which, you know, virtually gut that office. I mean, it would reduce it by 18 employees. That would take it from, I think, 45 to do the math. I think it's 23. I, I'm not doing mathematics in my head right now. But it would it re- reduce the staffing there significantly. And when I asked Governor Dayton what he thinks is behind that, he, he gave me a one-word answer, prejudice. Prejudice. So those are in there. There's all kinds of other things that are in there that he may not – really love. And so, you know, it, it kind of seems like he's heading toward a veto. Now, um, we've got all this acrimony uh, going on at the Capitol. It just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. You did a, a, an interview with uh, the incoming Supreme Court Justice Paul Thiessen, former, uh, former House Speaker from a couple of uh, sessions ago. Uh, he, When you did that, you got the feeling that he had some thoughts about how we can take care of this uh, gridlock, this, uh, you know, acrimony that we have at the at the Capitol right now? Well, um, I, I think that if you know Paul Thiessen, you know that he's nothing if he's not measured. So he didn't really, he, he's not going to jump out and say, you know, I'm going to go and, and fix what's wrong with the Capitol now that I've got this robe. But what he did say, <laughs> excuse me, I, 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 the question I asked him is that the, the Supreme Court clearly wants to stay out of the political fray, but do you see a constitutional role for straightening out some of these political problems that have, have landed issues in court in the last few years, the legislature v. Dayton case, for instance? And he, he specifically referred to that case, said that the court handled it perfectly. They did exactly what they should do. They pushed the legislative and executive branches to work it out for themselves. But the question I asked then was, but... Because there was a pause there that sort of hung for a second. I said, but restraint has its limits. And he said, that's what I was going to say. He said that he thinks there's a point where the court has to make sure that the whole structure of government is working the way that serves democracy. And so, you know, for him, he thinks that there is a role in the court to make sure that, you know, it preserves the democratic institutions. You know, uh, the court here is the, the court would step in to say how the legislative branch or executive branch operates uh, is moving away from the fundamental idea that we live in a representative democracy, and that is, and and it's the people's voice that needs to be heard. So, he's not really outlining exactly, you know, how that would play out, but he is signaling that he thinks, at least as I read it, that the court does have a role to play in straightening out some of the political dysfunction. Now, he's only going to be one vote on the court. He, he can hardly come in and ride roughshod over the entire court and change the entire uh, dynamic there. And the court has indeed wanted to stay out of the political fray. I think if we've learned anything over the last year, it is that. They are as a majority of Dayton appointees now. That's going to be Mark Dayton's legacy. The question is, they they have avoided, I think, and we just, what, what uh, we were talking about here with uh, Senator Marty, they've avoided talking or about really deciding decisively about the one subject rule when it comes to a bill. They've kind of said and punted and said, well, if it says it's a bill relating to government, I guess you can put all that stuff in there. 
I mean, is that some of the stuff he's alluding to, or do you think he's alluding to other stuff that uh, he's potentially? Gonna... The only reason I say that he didn't, we didn't talk specifically about that, and that was on purpose because he didn't want to go there. That's Obviously, an issue that yeah. could potentially wind up in the court, so he can't really speak to it. But I am given to understand. I haven't seen the bill yet. I haven't found it, but I am given to understand that he authored last year some sort of a single subject bill. And so, you know, what that means when he moves on to the court, I, I don't know. Um, I think that would, because the only way they could approach that is through a constitutional amendment. It's, a, it's an uh, element of the Constitution. The legislature can't rewrite the Constitution. It has to do that through, you know, a ballot initiative. Um, and there is, frankly, this is unpublished, and I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but I do know I'm working on a story right now about another legislator who's trying to push a single-subject bill, get a constitutional ballot on the uh, initiative on the ballot to change it so that the, the primary idea would be to stop, pro- prohibit the legislature from doing finance bills that include policy provisions. That would be its fundamental aim. And it has a number of people on both sides of the aisle that are interested in this. I'm not going to go any farther than that because I haven't written the story. It's not published. Yeah. But, that you know, that's something that is being looked at. There's some interest in that. And the courts have pretty much signaled that they're not going to go there. I mean, in the Otto case, for instance, which was just decided, one of the things that I think people like uh, John Marty might find alarming, in fact, he's told me he does find it sort of alarming, is that... The court ruled in the Otto case when they took on the single subject question that she brought to them that the term state government operations is not too broad a topic to qualify as a single subject in a bill. Well, that would mean potentially that at some point you could actually have one bill that encompasses every bit of legislation they do, bonding, taxes, budget, Policy, everything could be folded into one giant bill, which, of course, would be a balance of power issue because that, you know, how is the governor going to veto that unless he just vetoes the entire thing? Of course, when you try to amend it, it's not germane. So, yeah. <laughs> even well, though it's right. about and that, If that the bill I'm talking about, if it were to be brought forward, it have at this point because it's missed all the deadlines, it would have to be brought onto the House floor and try to get that past the germaneness test. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we're speaking with Kevin Feather. Bill, we're speaking with Kevin Featherly from Minnesota Lawyer. You can find him over at minnesotalawyer.com. Kevin, I know you have to run, but I appreciate you dropping in here today to uh, bring us up to date what's going on in the legislature. Get some sleep because I know there's going to be some long nights ahead. Yeah, I want to make one last point. Uh, the I sure. asked them, and they have. I guess they've already done it. They pulled the Paul Thiessen interview out from behind our our paywall, ooh, so it's actually ooh. available to the public if they should choose to read it. It's really pretty interesting interview. And, and by the way, the most revealing moment is when he, I learned that he's a Stones guy, not a Beatles guy, which I found rather surprising. Stones, not Beatles. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> there, I, I am I am disappointed, but uh, I'm in, informed. I'm surprised. <laughs> I, 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 I took him for a Beatles guy. I was totally wrong. All right. Well, Kevin, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Coming up here next on the Mike McIntyre Show, a great opportunity to learn how to live stream video like we do at the uptake and become a better storyteller. We'll get into that next year on the Mike McEntee Show. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. Hi, this is Gregory Rich from Habitation Furnishing and Design, and I'd like you to tune in to a new program, Drink in the Style. Sundays at 5 p.m., Drink in the Style is going to be a one-hour conversation about interior design and aesthetics, all while enjoying a cocktail created by a local mixologist. Drink in the Style, Sundays at 5 p.m., brought to you by Habitation Furnishing and Design. 
Burger Moe's is the perfect neighborhood gathering spot before and after Excel Center events or anytime. Moe is serious about burgers, offering 20 fresh, never frozen varieties. Burger Moe's also offers delicious appetizers, soups, salads, as well as unburgers, dogs, paninis, shakes, and desserts. Not to mention more than 60 beers on tap and happy hours twice daily. Burger Moe's is located at 242 West 7th Street in St. Paul with plenty of free parking and online at burgermoe's.com. No matter what your taste, you'll find the music you're looking for at the Electric Fetus. Pick from rock, pop, international, roots music, and so much more on CD and vinyl. Or create your own compilation of favorites with the exclusive Mix and Burn CD station. Only available at the Electric Fetus. Dust off your vinyl or just make some space by turning your unwanted music into cash. The used selection changes daily, so check out the new arrivals often. 2000 4th Avenue South in Minneapolis and online at efetus.com. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show. It wasn't exactly a natural disaster that we'll be getting, uh, you know, flood relief funds from, but uh, the the press area at the Capitol yesterday was flooded. A sprinkler head went, you know, berserk, and there was water everywhere. It leaked into, you know, it leaked into our, uh, the uptake, the uptake.org, which of course I'm the executive director for, and uh, we provide a lot of the, the audio that you hear on the show. Yeah, it got that too. Uh, but we're okay. Uh, we are still live streaming the legislature. We've done this in some of the most adverse circumstances, so a little water isn't going to stop us. But you know, if you want to send some money our way to help us uh, keep things organized and running, that's fine at theuptake.org. But I wanted to pass along something that we're doing that's really special. Uh, we are doing classes uh, most Saturdays in June to teach you how to use audio, writing, a live video, photography, uh, all those types of good things to be better at, tell your stories. You know, for live video, which I do a lot of, uh, we're going to teach you how to use Facebook and YouTube using just your smartphone, as well as how to use a consumer and professional cameras. So you can you can communicate with folks better than just holding up that phone and having the shaky picture of uh, you know you at Christmas with uh, Aunt Helen. Uh, we've got uh, we've got some great techniques, and uh, if you want to do this professionally or you want to help your organization, this is a great way to get uh, started on that. There is a charge. The uh, it varies by class, but the good news is, if you're low income or a student, there are special rates for you. And you can find all of this at theuptake.org/classes. That's theuptake.org/classes. Uh, get registered. There's limited room, but uh, they start at their Saturdays in June again. Uh, photography, live video, writing, audio. We've got uh, some of the best teachers from across the Twin Cities running these classes. I'm really excited about doing this. Hey, and then finally, Brett, I missed this yesterday. It was your birthday yesterday. How oh, did you, I couldn't how, hide it, could I? <laughs> yeah. Happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you happy very much. Happy belated birthday. And for folks who don't know, I basically just show up and do the show. Brett arranges everything. I just show up. He makes everything tick. All I have to do is, you know, have it happen. So uh, there's not a, a better guy in the world for, for making radio run than than Brett. Brett, thank you. Thank you. And happy, happy belated birthday to you. All right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, and I, I told you I was going to embarrass you about that earlier. So You warned me on surprised. Facebook. You did. I warned you. I warned you. Hey, folks, I'm going to warn you that we will be back here tomorrow, and I expect you to be here as well. Norman Goldman coming up next. And, Mom, hey, thank you for listening.